Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 351. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 351 you're listening to. My guest today is Grammy-nominated mixer, producer, and recording engineer Travis Ferentz, who has worked with Imagine Dragons, John Mayer, Ariana Grande, and Bush, just to name a few. He's also the host of the great podcast called Progressions, Success in the Music Industry, of which I was recently a guest on episode number 48. And now we're flipping the script and he's coming on my show today. So very excited to have Travis on and I think you'll enjoy our conversation. Travis Ferentz coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about staying organized. So all of us run the gamut on organization. Some of you are super OCD. Some of you are total slobs. And some of you are right in between. And, you know, there's many of us too, and I'm going to put myself in this category, where we go through ebbs and flows of organization. Some days we're organized, some days we're not. We recognize when we're not, and we try to get back to the ideal state of being organized. Let's talk about why it's important to stay organized. Let's first off talk about it from an economic perspective. If you stay organized, you know where your stuff is. And why is that important? Well, when gigs come up and you need to assemble a combination of things to do that gig, when you can't find a couple key pieces because you're disorganized, it can cost you. You might have to rebuy what it is you cannot find. And you might say, well, that's okay. I can just go on Amazon and rebuy it. It'll be here tomorrow. That doesn't always work out. So please don't count on Amazon to save your butt because things happen. Deliveries get rescheduled. Stuff you think is going to be in stock is not. Any number of things can happen. So if you just stay organized and you know where the thing is that you bought originally, not only do you save money, but you save the hassle of having to spend the time to go buy it again. The other part of this is the time factor. Yeah, maybe you can go rebuy something or maybe you can borrow something. And of course, that's up to you, but it takes time to do that. It eats away at your schedule. You got to find somebody who's got a piece of gear that you need. They may not be able to lend it to you. And if even if they are, you're going to have to drive somewhere or ask them to drive somewhere. Some amount of transportation is going to be involved in making the trade of, you know, borrowing or renting from an, a fellow uh, audio professional. And they may have a gig and they may need that piece of gear. So you may be out of luck. So there's the economic, there's the time. Let's talk about the inspiration part of it or the lack of. When you're in the middle of something and you could be in the room with an artist and you're looking for a particular something that is going to help you achieve what it is you want to do, maybe it's a guitar pedal that you're going to do some weird thing with, with the vocal. I don't know. It could be anything. You can't find it. And you sat there and you, you told the artist, oh, I got this great pedal. We'll do this thing. You go looking for the pedal. You don't know where it is. You don't remember if you lent it to somebody. The inspiration's gone. The moment's passed, right? So don't let your disorganization get in the way of moments like that. If you stay organized, 
you can go and find whatever it is, the guitar pedal in this case, you can go and find it and you can make that magic happen. Some of the things that you might want to think about when you organize, don't get too micro here. You want to organize in broad categories. Don't get too micro to the point where you sabotage the organization process. So audio adapters, there's a million audio adapters out there, right? Rather than coming up with, you know, containers for all of the different audio adapters, just have one box, you know, small box. I use these shoe boxes. They're clear and plastic from the container store. You could see what's inside them. You know, you can buy a Brother P-Touch label maker and you can uh, make a nice black on white label that you could see from across the room or, you know, that you could spot it in whatever storage closet you're putting it in. You walk in, you look up, look, there's the audio adapter box. Oh, and I could see through the box and see the adapter that I want. And that could contain all the variations of audio adapters you have. Now, I mentioned small box here with these things. That's the trick. Don't try to go too big with your boxes because you're probably going to put these things on shelves, no doubt. And if you got, let's say, two or three giant boxes stacked on top of one another, getting to the box on the bottom is really going to be a pain in the ass. Categorize things in smaller boxes that are more manageable. If you got to do a multitude of boxes like that, do it. But also use that time as you're categorizing and putting stuff in boxes. Maybe you don't need all those cables, right? Maybe you could do without a few of them. Just because you bought them doesn't mean you have to keep them if you're not using them. You know, keep a stash of mic cables, XLR to TRS cables, all kinds of stuff that you would use. But then how many of any one cable do you need? We all know that we're going to need a lot of mic cables, but, you know, I have a gazillion XLR to TRS sitting around. I really don't need them all. I actually need just a handful. So rather than hold on to them, pass them along to a friend or donate them. You don't have to keep it all. And here's my final thought. We all lend stuff to people. Do yourself a favor. Keep a document that tells you who borrowed what, when, and their phone number. Simple as that. Doesn't have to be fancy. Just do that, and you'll find that when you go looking for a piece of gear and you think, oh, I lent it to somebody. Who did I lend that microphone to? You can go to your sheet and quickly find out who has it. Call them up and say, hey, I need my whatever it is. I've got a gig you know, tomorrow or the next day. You can be generous and lend gear out, but make sure you know who has it. So that's it. Stay organized. Keep all this stuff together. And as I mentioned in the last episode about habits, make organization part of your habits. You'll save more money, be more productive, keep your clients happy, keep that inspiration going, and keep track of your stuff. All right, that's my rant. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Evan are two of the nicest people on the planet, easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might've met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might've heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. 
I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Travis Ferentz here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Travis, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, honored to, to be here. I'm not going to screw around. Let's jump right into it. You grew up in North Carolina. I did in Raleigh. It's like right in the middle. If, if you've never been to North Carolina, it's a good, a good little town. Yeah. Oh, I've been. Yeah. But you have like no indication in, in your voice that you're from North Carolina. <laughs> uh, well, my parents are Yankees. They are from Pennsylvania. And anybody that is born and raised in North Carolina knows that I'm not actually Southern. So that's why I have no accent. And I'm not really from North Carolina. But yes, I was born there. You were born there. Yeah. So in North Carolina, growing up, what part did music play in your world? You know... I would say that I was a, a late bloomer to music, but I mean, it was like middle school when I got serious about it. My parents were really great at introducing me to a lot of stuff. I took a keyboard class when I was a little kid. We had a kind of a hippie guitar teacher, but he made me like read music and that stuff just doesn't click when you're a kid. So music, like it just didn't get me. Like the first record I bought or CD I bought was one of the classic Led Zeppelin albums. And, you know, I didn't like it. I sold it in a garage sale. Like I, the fact that I do music now and I think about like where music was in my life when I was like nine or something like that, it, it just wasn't there. But uh, I was exposed to a lot of stuff. Thankfully, I played sports. I played a lot of sports. 
and then basically got into music in middle school when somebody was like, hey, do you want to play this thing called bass? We're going to do a talent show. And I was like, cool, I want to have friends. I'm going to play this bass thing. Mom, I want to play this bass thing. <laughs> so <laughs> that's like my gateway right there. Okay, I got to stop you right there. <laughs> okay, which Led Zeppelin album are we talking about? I don't remember because I was a kid, but I remember that I got rid of like a couple CDs in a garage sale and that Zeppelin, it was a double disc. I mean, I should know because it makes the story better, but then I also don't want to admit it because it makes it more embarrassing, you know? <laughs> right. So that probably would have been physical graffiti, maybe? Off the top of my head, I'm going to say physical graffiti, but I could be wrong. I'll look in a minute. I might have to give you some shit about that. <laughs> <laughs> I could take it. I could take it. I, I earned it, I think. It was a mistake. So this bass thing, as you call it, how did that go and where did that lead to? Well, it's actually a pretty funny story. I wasn't allowed to do that talent show. I got kicked out because... Because they found out you sold that Zeppelin record? Yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, it's... You know, I'd never played an instrument. Like the idea of that we were playing and there was rhythm, like I had nothing going for me. So my friends played the talent show without me. I got cut out, but I had this bass. And my favorite part is that it was, they were playing Glycerin by Bush. I mean, it was huge at the time. This is like, I don't know, like 95 or six or something like that. I was in middle school. And uh, I enjoy that fact because since then I've worked with Bush. And so the fact that the reason I started was to get kicked out of a talent show to play their song and then to one day get to contribute a little bit to a record. I just enjoy that part. But <laughs> I just kept pursuing bass. You know, I took lessons and eventually my friend left his guitar at my house and that looked way cooler. And I was switching over to guitar. But really music for me started seriously like freshman year of high school. And that's when I was always playing guitar at home. Didn't play in a lot of bands, mostly just played by myself, learned songs, always took guitar lessons. And yeah, that's how I got got into this. I'm not going to say mess, but that's how I got in into this. When did recording come onto your radar? Did that come after you left North Carolina? No, recording came in. If I were honest, I I was more of an athletic type. I wasn't like the artsy music type. I mean, I wasn't like I'm not ripped or anything. I, I look like a musician, but I played soccer until I got cut, and then I played basketball until I got cut, and in high school. I ended up playing lacrosse, which for anybody that hasn't seen lacrosse, it's like soccer meets hockey. hockey. Yeah. So I was playing lacrosse and I probably would have gone to college to play some like mid-level lacrosse and maybe be a history teacher because I just really loved history. And I got hurt my junior year and I was doing a lot of music, but I missed that junior year season. I had like a, like a mild back fracture. So I spent the whole year basically recording my buddy Greg. We wrote a bunch of songs, you know, stayed up all night burning CDs and then like begged people to buy them in the lobby at school for like a dollar. And so I had a Korg D1600. It was a digital 16 channel like workstation, super primitive. You could have like, I don't know, two plugins at a time or maybe four. <laughs> so mostly I just over compressed bass because it sounded cool. Didn't know what a compressor was, but I know it sounded way better when I turned this compressor thing on. Same thing with vocals just sounded better. Didn't know what it did. So we just, we made a bunch of music, Greg and I, and made CDs. And that, that kind of sparked the recording interest for me. Hmm. And then I did, the thing that really solidified it was Berkeley College of Music. I think they still do this. They have summer programs. They have like a five-week program 
for people and they had like a weekend three or four day like production and engineering workshop and so i did that quick trip up to boston and three days like seeing all this gear and watching people record things still have no clue what any of these things are but when i came back from that i told my parents i was like i want to go there and i want to do that and that's when i was sold that's not when they were sold though (laughs) (laughs) i was allowed to apply to berkeley but i also had to apply to various other colleges one of the things that was in the running was like it became audio engineering so going to like a college that had electrical engineering and an audio program that i could kind of mix those together and there were still opportunities to potentially play lacrosse if i did that so that was like appealing for somebody that had really wanted to participate in that but in the end berkeley won out and that's where i went and i don't regret that at all so. Did you graduate from that program? I did. I did. I did my four years. Um, a lot of people don't graduate from that program or just any program there. They they all do something, but I was there the whole time. What's the takeaway of, from that time there? I mean, it, multiple. Like As like a person, Boston is absolutely maybe the greatest city you could go to college in as an 18 to 22-year-old. I don't know. I'm going to have the statistic wrong, but it's like 40 plus schools within 40 miles of each other. So the college culture there is really amazing. There's a lot of art schools. You've got like Massachusetts School of the Arts. You've got Berkeley. You've got other conservatories. So there's a lot of bands. Like there's a lot of clubs to play in. So that part of Boston is amazing. Berkeley at the time was amazing, but it's not what it is now. Anybody that might go there now or or is thinking about going there now, it's like a skyscraper and it's all fancy. When I went there, I believe my mom told me years later that when they drove away, they were like, oh my God, did we leave him there? The dorm building was a bit like, you were like, oh, this is like 1970. Have they cleaned it? (laughs) (laughs) But um, it was amazing. Like I met so many of the friends I still have there. So many connections. It's been a source of podcast guests for myself, which has been fun to reconnect with people I haven't talked to in 15 years. But I thought it was a great experience. It's about as real world as you can make something. And I I guess I should preface that I'm talking about the music production and engineering program. I think it's about as real world as you can make an education facility and still educate, even though the real world is extremely different from any type of college situation. So I think they do a good job over there. So you graduated from the program. Where did you go directly after that? Or did you stay for a while in Boston? No, I was uh, I was straight to Los Angeles. It was between Nashville and L.A., and this was like 2006. Hmm. Obviously, both of these places are very different now than they were then. Nashville made a lot of sense to me because I grew up in North Carolina. It was closer to home. So I went there for spring break one year, and then spring break the next year, I went to L.A. with a friend. And when you get on a plane in Boston, and it's snowing, and you got like jackets on, and you land in Long Beach because you took JetBlue because it was the cheapest. And you're like shedding your jacket while you're walking. Because Long Beach, they like land, you walk across a tarmac. It's one of those airports, right? And you're just like taking your jacket <laughs> off and the sun's shining. You're like, oh my God, this is the, I'm coming here. And so I was sold right at that moment. I was like, this is it, LA. So that's, that's how I ended up here. It, I took about a month at home after I graduated college. And then I drove over here. Me and my best friend did the cross-country drive. Something else I recommend everybody do once. And had an apartment lined up that I'd flown out to find and just started looking for jobs. I came out with no job, a little bit of money, basically the stuff that was in my dorm room and went for it. (laughs) Wow. If I read your your bio correctly, Capital was on the list of a few of your stops there. 
Was that early on or was that, did that come later? Capital was, that was my first job. And it was not on my list of studios to apply to when I came out here because they didn't have a lot of Berkeley kids working there. And so like when you're finishing up your program, wherever you go to college, you probably know a lot about the studios that your peers are graduating and getting jobs at. So when I came out, like I really thought like Henson and Village, I had so many friends that were working at Henson and Village. Like those were the ones that I thought, yeah, this is where I'm going to go. I'm going to go to one of these. And Capital kind of came to me, you know, in a roundabout way because I went to college with Elliot Shiner's son, who's an, an engineer. I don't know if he's been on your show. He has not. He's such a nice, such a nice guy. I unfortunately, I haven't talked to him in a long time, so I feel bad. So I'm going to admit that I lost touch and I'm sorry. But he did a graduation recording concert and he was running a truck outside at, at Berkeley. And so his son was like, hey, man, do you want to come and help my dad? And so me and a couple people, we went and we helped out. And so I was talking to him. I was like, I'm going to go to LA. Do you have any suggestions? And he said, well, he said, call Paula at Capital. He's like, Capital's the best. Go there. And so I was like, well, before I start throwing resumes at all these other studios, I was like, I got to go over here because LA told me to go here. So I sent Paula Salvatore, the legendary studio manager. I just sent her like a cold email and the subject was like, Elliot Shiner told me to contact you. <laughs> <laughs> That's the way to do and, uh, it, right? <laughs> and so I got an interview and I got hired. If you could call it hired, it was like the most part-time thing you could possibly give to somebody. So I got a job quick in the first couple of weeks, but I was working honestly like four to 10 hours a week. And I would wait. I would just sit sit in my apartment. I'd be waiting for the phone to ring because I was the extra guy. And so they only needed me when it got really busy or there was like a huge setup. And so I had to be ready to go. So I would just sit there and once 7 p.m. rolled around and I'm like, okay, nobody's going to call today. Maybe they'll call tomorrow. <laughs> so it was a long couple months as I like kind of worked my way into actually working 40 plus hours a week. But it was it was good. And so it's a fun place to work. So you didn't you didn't have a cell phone? I did have a cell phone. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In my mind, I'm imagining you like sitting there, like twiddling your thumbs with a, you know, a landline, but you had a cell phone. So you just didn't really have many places to go and you had to stay there and prepared with whatever you needed to bring with you. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess I, I wasn't always sitting in my apartment, but yeah, I, I was ready. I'll just say that I was ready for the phone call at all times. And a lot of my friends that were here, they were working. And so there weren't a lot of people to hang out with. Like my buddies would be at Henson down the street and they'd get off their day shift and we would hang out or you'd be waiting for somebody to whatever. But studio schedules are so bizarre that it's hard to have friends to hang out with when they're all working in studios. Nobody's ever not working at the same time. So I have to ask, what, what were you doing to kill time during the day waiting for Capital to call? I was playing a lot of Xbox, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> And then I was I was doing some mixes for like people, random mixes. I was playing a lot of guitar at the time, really into alt country. That was the Wilco, Whiskey Town era of alt country. So I was always playing along to those. So I was playing music, kind of hobby, hobby doing music a little bit and playing Xbox and watching a lot of West Wing. <laughs> <laughs> watching West Wing, waiting for Capital to call. I love it. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I definitely being removed 15 years, wish I would have done some more constructive things during that time. But you're like fresh out of college. It seemed like the right thing to do. There's a certain amount of flexing and freedom and like, hey, nobody's going to tell me not to play Xbox all day long. And yeah, exactly. That's what it was. 
Yeah. You would have done it differently if it were, was today. I think anybody would have in hindsight. Well, so take me through what occurred at Capitol and what was that experience like for you? That was amazing. I was on my jog this morning and I was trying to think about my first session or like the first time. And I think the first time I was doing anything where there were like clients, I think I was tearing down all the microphones for like a big orchestra session. It was a Gwen Stefani song, one of the hits. It was like Alan Sides engineering and probably Ron Fair conducting or I know he was always involved. He was there. But, you know, we were just waiting in the hallway because the way that Capital works, and I know you've had like Steve Jenowick on the show. I don't know if he went into detail on this, but the entry level position at Capital is interesting because you're a runner as in most studios, but you are also what they call a setup guy. And they do so many union sessions there with very strict downbeats. And it's very expensive to go into overtime when you have an orchestra. And so at night, all the sessions, every mic needs to be taken down and every mic for the next day has to go up. And that might be a vocal turning into an acoustic guitar, or it might be a four-piece rock band turning into a 40-piece orchestra. So you're taking everything down, putting everything back up. Then when assistant engineers come in, they double check that the room looks correct, and then they handle the control room. But the the live room setup at Capitol is, for the most part, done by the setup crew, which makes it a really fun job when it's your first job, because that is not something that happens at a lot of the other studios. So you get a little bit of hands-on. You get to see, like, oh, if I set up the room mics here, and then I go home at 6 o'clock in the morning, when I come back at 4 p.m., I get to see where they are. And you kind of, like, make it your goal to put the string mics up and then not have the string mics get moved. And you learn like what engineers, how they angle their microphones. So then you start doing that for people. And it's just those little attention to detail things that you get to pick up and you get to see whether they did a good job or a bad job when you go take it down. So you're staying there at incredibly late hours, just setting up for the next day's session. Oh yeah. I think my first day that I actually worked more than like four hours, I was driving home at four o'clock in the morning. Cause it's all, it's like, it can be 60 plus inputs and you'd think a lot of tube microphones so you think basically two cables for every microphone at that point and you're not throwing these things in boxes they're irreplaceable so everything's handled with care so it can take a while you have stand lights it ain't a quick setup for an orchestra i know this is like so geeky for, of me to ask but <laughs> would you leave the the tube mics on and let them cook you know that really varied. Usually if it was a new setup, I would not turn them on. But when you're the morning guy and you come in, that's the first thing you got to do right. is start okay. cooking those things. But then some sessions, some guys didn't want to ever turn the mics off. If they were in like on a five-day lockout or a 10-day lockout, some guys wanted them off, some guys wanted them on. I should say guys and girls, I'm sorry. But it really comes down to the engineer on that one. Okay. So you're in Los Angeles. You probably know where I'm going with this. I'm trying to figure out how are you surviving? Because I'm like trying to structure it in my head. It's like, okay, well, you got an apartment and you're doing this part-time thing at Capital. Is it working financially? Barely. <laughs> so I was living by myself and that is financially taxing. The perk of working at a studio is a lot of times you are given food or there's leftovers for like big sessions or there might be catering. So some of your meals you're getting covered and stuff like that. But I had an amount, I don't remember, like I had a little bit of seed money that I thought would be my start. And I basically worked at Capital for about two and a half years. And it was definitely, it was a steady reduction in my seed money. I wasn't replenishing my cash. I was in a, a very gradual 
downward slope financially. So when I did leave capital and, and started doing some different work, that changed because I, I started getting paid more. But yeah, financially, like I wasn't killing it. That's for sure. <laughs> I was literally like every month I paid my credit card bill, I paid my rent and I had less money than the month before. And it would vary how much less, but it was always less. <laughs> that's okay. I wasn't going to ask you where you were parking your boat. <laughs> well, it must have been an awkward situation because you've got to be available, right? And therefore, that kind of prevents you from taking on too much other work. Yeah. So what do you do? You do side gigs where you can. I did a few little records here and super cheap mixes for people at Berkeley, but really my main income source was capital. And I mean, luckily I got into the point where I was working like 60 plus hours a week. And oh. at the time, I feel like a lot of studios in town now, they hire more people before paying overtime. Mid 2000s, that was not the case. They'd rather have three guys working all the time. So luckily there was overtime and that's what was paying the bills, especially on the night shift. If you were the day guy, you were going home after eight hours. But if you were on the night shift where you had to do the big setup, could get 10, 11 hours a day. And so that helped when you get that time and a half. What kind of hourly was that paying, if I may ask? That was, at the time, I think the highest paid runner position in Los Angeles, and that was $10 an hour. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Which was above minimum wage. And the fact that you were a runner and you were getting above minimum wage, like all my friends were like, I can't believe you're getting above minimum wage. And I was like, I know it's awesome. And the minimum wage at the time was like, I don't know, 825 or something in California. I don't what know. year are we talking here? Uh, 2006 and seven, right in there. Okay, right. We're, we're cresting over right into the financial collapse. We're driving right towards it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But you yeah. stayed there for how long? I worked there for two, about two and a half. And I kind of hit a ceiling and it is an amazing place to work and people stay for a long time as they should because it's a great job. But when you're in that entry level, that runner spot, like you have nowhere to go eventually. And so not going to like wish bad on my mentors and, and people that were ahead of me and hope that they have to stop working or something. So I got an opportunity to go and work just a day with a producer. The guy basically came through Capital and he asked the assistant, hey man, you're great at Pro Tools. Can you come and do some guitars for me? And so he said, no, I'm too busy. But if there was somebody that was going to get promoted around here, it's probably Travis. Call this kid. Maybe he can do it. So I went and did guitars for this songwriter producer for a day, just electric guitars. And at the end of the day, he was like, you want to come back tomorrow? And I was like, sure. All right. I wasn't working at Capitol. So drove back to the West Side the next day. Uh, I lived in Hollywood. We did it again. And then he was like, you want to just keep doing this? You want to work for me? And I was like, well, yeah. I mean, I guess like I kind of have to quit my job. He's like, well, see if you can get them two weeks notice. See if you can like come over here like a few more times. Let's make sure we're like a good fit or whatever. So then I had to go have a really awkward conversation with Paula and be like, hey, I think I'm going to go work for this guy, but I need some time off before I quit to see if he's going to hire me. And she's very understanding and people in the music business are like, those opportunities are weird when you're transitioning gig to gig. And so that's what I did. I went to go work for this guy and quit working at Capital before I was technically promoted to assistant. So I was really just a runner there for two and a half years. And then um, did Disney pop for like two years. The producer's name was Matthew Gerard. He did all the big Disney stuff in the early 2000s, like Hannah Montana and High School Musical and stuff like that. So I just was engineering for him. And he kind of kept giving me tasks. And if I did it good, he would let me do it again. And if I did it bad, he'd tell me how he likes to do it. And 
we just kept going like that until I was basically doing everything. So was there a change in pay there? There was. It was a, a, a fairly significant bump. Okay. It basically du- doubled my income overnight. Did you uh, regret leaving Capital at all? Did you have any trepidation about leaving? No. I mean, I guess what I should say is I went to go work for this guy and his sales pitch was everything I work on hits number one. And I was like, what? You do? Well, little did I know, like, yeah, I mean, these Disney stars, they were crushing it. This guy was killing it. And everything he did, did go to number one. And so there was an allure to that where I was like, oh, I can work on stuff that people are going to hear. And I think my first mix credit, it was a shared mix credit with him, went billboard number one and was a platinum record. I mean, it was the Hannah Montana movie, but that didn't happen again for like 10 years. So you had this weird, oh my God, I made it. I'm like 23 and I got a number one. And then it's, then it's over really. <laughs> but that's, that's how this business is. The highs are high and the lows are lows and, and you get to hit them all, but... I had fun. I don't regret leaving Capital. I missed it. I missed the community. And that's ultimately why I ended up going back a couple years later. Your time with, with this producer, what, what were the key takeaways from him? Did you learn a lot of interesting things? I learned a lot about the songwriting game, which kind of like leads me into the rest of my career and the rest of my story. This songwriting, I call it the songwriting game. It's like different people every day writing to your tracks or you're writing to piano and acoustic guitar and then the producer's making a musical bed behind that. So that's basically what he was doing. He'd written Kelly Clarkson's song. I mean, he was super talented musician. He programmed, he played guitar, bass. He did it all super well-rounded. And he had success in pop and then the television Disney genre. And so I got to learn a lot of stuff that I would never learn to Capitol because I mean, we were making pop music. And we were doing awful things to audio. I mean, like the kind of stuff that the guys at Capitol would have been like, what you did, what you put auto tune on it while they sang. That is disgusting. And so, (laughs) so I like, I came from this jazz and orchestra Al Schmidt inspired recording perfection. And then I come into like distort it, make it brighter. Oh, 4k is really harsh. Turn that up some more. So it was an interesting juxtaposition. And I think it, looking back, kind of defines my sound as an engineer is this odd mix of fidelity and, and pop, which I think is, is funny. But yeah, so I learned a lot about songwriting. I learned a lot about Pro Tools. I mean, running Pro Tools in a pop session, you better be really fast and then you're still going to get yelled at. I mean, I don't want to harp on Matthew. He, he gave me a hard time. He was, he was good at making sure you knew that you made a mistake or you were about to make a mistake in a good way. Like he wasn't, it wasn't an asshole, but I mean, I would fly vocals from the second chorus to the third chorus because you're flying everything in pop sessions. Right. So I'd be flying vocals and it'd be off a half a bar or something. Right. Cause the grid was off, but we wouldn't be listening to the third chorus. We'd be listening to the second verse and I'm flying the second chorus vocals to the third chorus. And he would walk over and he'd hit stop and he'd be like, did you fly that wrong? I'm like, dude, we haven't even heard that yet. <laughs> like, and I fixed it. You just came over here to make sure that I knew I messed it up. You saw me mess it up. Nobody heard it, but you wanted to tell me. I, I give, you know, I'm giving him a hard time, but I learned a lot from working with him, especially when it comes to like publishing, songwriting. We did some TV shows. At one point, he couldn't go to spotting sessions for a TV show. So like I was in the spotting session taking notes with the music supervisor. And so there's a lot of things that I got exposed to that I would have had no chance of getting exposed to at Capitol. So I'm super grateful for that opportunity, even though it was two, three years. Wow. So where did you go after that? I went back to Capitol. <laughs> no shit. Did you I, really? 
I did. Here's the the double-edged sword of going to work for a producer is it it's just you and him or her that you're working with. And everybody that comes through, they see you as that person's engineer. And nobody calls you. You could be their favorite hang and, and the fastest Pro Tools person they ever met. But you're busy, right? You're working for Matthew. Like, I'm not going to call Travis. He's, he's booked. Mm-hmm. And at one point, there was a client, I think that... I don't remember exactly what happened, but Matthew confronted me and said, hey, did you try to work with this person that came in here? And like, really, I was just, I think I was just having a rapport with them. We were just like having email communication. I wasn't trying to take a client or something. And to me at that point, I was like, oh, I have to be really careful about my interactions with people because he thinks that I'm trying to like use my job here to like propel myself and take his connections or something. So that started to make me think that I needed to go back into a studio community And I needed to stop, even though it was an amazing studio and it was a great job and it was super secure, I needed to stop going to the same place every day because I was in the comfort zone. I was just eating it up and I didn't know where I was going to go. And so I started to get afraid that I didn't know what would happen next. And so we were having something mastered at Capital because Capital had a mastering department at the time. And I was talking to one of my old employers and he said, hey, we're building these pop songwriting rooms. And I was like, oh, that's crazy. I've just been doing pop songwriting sessions for the last couple of years. And he was like, oh, we were going to promote within. We were going to hire Joe and and -and so-and-so. But if you want to come back, I would take you back. And I was like, let's talk about it. And so I came back, got hired as an engineer for these pop songwriting rooms that they were doing. It was like a joint venture with a publishing company. And so that's how I ended up back there, technically skipping assistant engineer, which that I do regret to a certain extent that I never did very much assistant engineering at Capital or in any large studio. I think there's a lot to learn there that I missed out on. But yeah, I found myself employed and having corporate benefits and making pop music and meeting people and perfect storm. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Sampley.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. 
You know, it's interesting as you were telling me Matthew's reaction to you and this client. I'm the type of person that when somebody starts to clamp down on me in that capacity, I'm like a wild horse. I'm like, ah, sorry, I can't stay in the stable. You do not have that kind of control over me. It gave me a, a strange sense when you said it. So my question is, is, did you have a reaction to that? Yeah, that was the beginning of, well, what am I supposed to do? That's what I started to think. If I'm not allowed to talk to whoever this person was, then how am I ever going to transition from this to something else? If everybody that I'm meeting, I'm technically not supposed to have any form of working relationship with, then where do I go except stay here? You know what I mean? Yeah. So that, that in, yeah, that. Yeah, that seems like it triggered something in you and enough that, well, you took this job back at Capital and had a little more say in your destiny. I did. And the second job at Capital was also kind of like this perfect thing in like shaping my career because it's a union job there. And so there's a lot of perks to that. You're going to make sure that you work 40 hours and stuff like that. You're going to be taken care of. There's always 40 hours worth of work for sure. But that's written into the contract that if there's not 40 hours worth of work, you better find 40 hours worth of work. And so with this new joint venture thing, and I don't remember what year this is, and I should preface to everybody that it is completely different now. And so anything that I say about it is no longer correct. But at the time, they were able to negotiate us not having that 40 hour minimum. So me and this other guy got hired without a guarantee. And we were fine with that because the conversations and the meetings and everything, we were going to work. The label was all excited. They're like, we're going to use these rooms. And the publishing company was like, you're never going to get in here because we're using these rooms. And long story short, none of that happened. <laughs> it was e EMI at the time who was sold to Terra Firma. And now we're getting into label business dealings and the EMI publishing and EMI recorded music were split off into two different divisions. And then all of a sudden the joint venture wasn't the same company anymore. And then nobody wanted to like go out to competitors because it became very convoluted and very confusing on who was supposed to be using these rooms. And so we had these two rooms and these two engineers, and I should say that we helped finish building the rooms, which was a great experience, but we had these two rooms that were just not getting used. And we had these two guys, me and my friend Joe, who we weren't protected by that 40-hour guarantee. And that actually was the best part is because the work wasn't steady. It was always one foot in and one foot out. And I love Capital and I love everybody over there. But my life would be completely different if I was working 40 hours a week for those five years that I was a staff engineer. I enjoyed the fact that I made the records I made. Some weeks I worked 10 hours and then I would do another gig, but it forced me to meet people. And so that's when I started to kind of shape my career as an independent engineer that way. There's a lot of information to throw at you. No, no. And it's very interesting because this brings up a very good point. I have friends that work for some famous musicians as their engineer. I have friends that are staff employees at studios. I have freelance engineer friends. And it's interesting, you know, the trajectory of your career, how it can develop based on those circumstances. I mean, I will say this, and this is no knock to those that are the dedicated engineer for an individual. It kind of limits you for what you have the time capacity for for working on projects because you're essentially working for one person. Yeah. And you're not getting out there as much. 
personally, that doesn't work for me. And it sounds like that wasn't really working for you and that you too wanted to branch out and work on multiple projects with a lot of different people. Yeah. I mean, if, if you look at my jobs, most of them are like two to three years. Most of my like really strong working relationships are like two to three years. And I mean, it sounds kind of stupid to say, but I worked at Capital for five or six years and that kind of directly corresponds with your 401k being vested. <laughs> so I know you talk about financial stability and, and saving for your future is important. So I definitely kept that in mind. But yeah, I, I feel the same way. I feel like I get stale. I just need to change it up. I need to just get inspired by somebody else. You know, and it's never anybody's fault that I don't want to work with them anymore. It's more I'm looking for a new thing, a new exciting thing. And, and I want to say just for the audience, if you're listening, I'm not saying that that stability working for a single artist or working at a studio as, an, as a dedicated employee like, like you were doing at, at Capital. I'm not saying that is bad at all. I mean, that's great. There's great stability in that. I think it all depends on your personality type. My personality type dictates to me that I need to be independent. Sounds like you're the same way. So no knock on that. Just want to clarify, figure out your personality type, right? And find oh, yeah. in that way, it'll help direct you to where you should be. I know this isn't something that many people really think about too deeply, but I think it's a factor. It's a huge factor. Looking back on my past, I realized, oh yeah, it's because I'm this way. Yeah. I definitely, I realized exactly what what you just said, I realized that kind of late. And, you know, like I've said plenty of times before, like I love everybody at Capital, but I found towards the end of my time there a frustration with the decisions being made about the room that I was working in every day. And what I wanted or thought was important was different from what they wanted and thought was important. They are in charge. It is their studio. But I started to feel that rub of like, I want to work differently. It's not that I disagreed with them and I didn't like what they were doing. I wanted to make choices. And I had up until that point, I hadn't really got to make choices for myself because mm -hmm. I'd always worked for somebody. And I think that was the biggest part. And then when I started doing outside work and you get a taste of deciding how you want to work and how you want to work, it makes it harder to go back to having a boss. Yeah. I mean, any client is a boss, but like an employer is different than a, than a client. Also, I have to clarify this too, because Steve and I talk a fair amount. And Steve Genowick, while he does work for Capital, he does the occasional freelance gig. And he, he and he's able to differentiate, you know, this is a Capital or Universal Music Group gig versus some one-off project. So he's not necessarily hampered by that. And I'm not trying to say that if you work there, you can't do this. But in Steve's case, it's not a black and white thing. It's not. Well, it, that's every person's decision. And Steve, if we're making you mad, call me and Matt and yell at us. <laughs> Steve's going to, he's sitting there. It out. <laughs> he's listening in the car right now and he's probably cursing us. Right. He, he's live. He's streamed in. Those dumb shits, they, they're not getting this right at all. <laughs> Anyhow, let's talk about this. The Progressions Success in the Music Industry podcast. When did that come about and why did it come about? So a lot of things I was just talking about kind of were the beginning of that. And so the idea behind that podcast is I'm 37. And so somewhere in my early 30s, I started to make a lot of changes in the way that I approached my business and like my working lifestyle and my mindset. I had no work-life balance. That's something that I, I didn't really mention up until this point. Maybe you figured it out. I never put myself first. So when I started making all these changes, I just saw that my life was improving. And I basically want to try to share some of these mindset things 
that I think improved my life with other people. And the podcast went through a couple forms, none of which came out. But I thought first, I want to do like a productivity YouTube channel for like audio engineers. And, and then I didn't really, I wasn't feeling that. And and so the podcast thing came up. So that started in 2020 during the pandemic when everybody started a podcast. And I committed to doing 52 episodes. I committed to doing a year, doing it weekly. And you were just on my show. You were number 48. I've got my last few booked. I can see 52 on the horizon and I have plans for next year. But basically, I kind of just, I changed my whole life and how I approach everything. And I think there's a lot of approaches and there's a lot of lifestyles in the music industry that I think are counterproductive to ultimately fulfilling your happiness. And so a lot of this corresponds with meeting my wife and she's very driven. She has her own business. The way that she handles her life was very different from the way that I handled my life. And I was like, whoa, you've got your shit figured out in a way that I don't. Yeah. What are you doing? And so I started to do a lot of work when it comes to thinking about how I view things and what's important to me and what is my time worth? Time is the only thing that we have a limited amount of, right? That's the only thing you actually have a limited amount of. So I just, I changed everything. What did you change? Basically, it started with work-life balance stuff. I was basically working like 16 hours a day. I would work on independent projects and then go work for whatever producer I was working for. And there was just no personal time. So when I did finally meet a person that I wanted to have time for, uh, the first thing I had to solve was this balance problem. And so the first thing I did was I quit the job I was working at, which was working for a producer, and started thinking about what I wanted to say yes to. Basically, every time you say yes to something, you're saying no to something else, right? And it's a weird way to look at it, but it can really change your perspective. So if I say yes to a gig, that might mean that I'm saying no to dinner with my wife, or it might say that you're saying no to like your kid's dance recital or whatever it is. And there comes a time in your life where you eventually have to like find this balance and like redefine what happiness is, redefine what success is, right? Because I think one of the biggest problems that I had was that I was trying to fit into the audio engineer mold and what success was, was defined to me by what I was seeing around me. And so then when you do that, I think you open yourself up to disappointment because you're always comparing yourself to someone else's career. And that is not necessarily healthy. You will find your own path to success. Getting your first Grammy the way that XYZ engineer got their first Grammy is not how you're going to get your first Grammy. So every time the biggest record you ever did doesn't get you your Grammy, you're disappointed, I guess is what I'm trying to say. So that was the beginning of it was kind of defining for myself what I wanted to do. And I feel more successful because of it. Mm -hmm. Whether, you know, I am technically on paper more successful than I was five years ago there could be a debate and people could argue about that. But I can guarantee you that I do what I want with my time more than most people who work in the music business and that I am generally very happy and energized. I mean, everybody's got their downer day, right? <laughs> right. But it seems like, tell me if you agree, I think that a lot of the expectation is, is that you've got to overwork and you've got to sacrifice a lot of things to make it happen for you as an audio professional. You do. And some of those uh, concepts and ideas, I think, have just been ingrained in a lot of us from 
the past generations because that's how they did it. And everything else has changed in the music industry specifically. So why can't these concepts change? I think is my big question. You know, why do we all have to like give up people's birthdays and, and celebrations like that life events that will, will never get back. Oh yeah. I completely agree. And you kind of touched on one of the things that I wrote down before I came on is that I completely agree with you. I think that there's two phases of a music career. And I think this applies to people outside of recording engineers. There's the do everything, the always say yes, the expose yourself to everybody that you can overprocess your tracks, put your stamp on everything, like make everything sound like you think it should sound because you're in your discovery phase. You're trying to figure out what you are as an engineer, who you are as an artist or a musician, right? And then you're supposed to stop. You're supposed to stop saying yes to every gig and putting your stamp on every project because that's what you do when you're trying to figure out what an EQ does. And that's what you do when you're trying to figure out what a compressor does. And eventually you need to move on to what I consider to be the second phase. And that's to work selectively with projects that you're passionate about. I mean, yes, we all do jobs because you get paid. We all do that, but you don't have to do every single one of them. So just doing less, thinking about what you're doing and serving the music, because now that you've mastered your craft, presumably in phase one, when you overworked yourself to the edge of burnout, now you can do what's right for the music and you no longer have to like validate your presence in the, in the project, Yeah, which I think is like the scarcity mindset that I think tortures everybody in this business. So in retrospect now, do you feel like you have a good work-life balance? No, <laughs> no way. <laughs> I'm better. I, I preach about it on the podcast. And if you listen to the show, you might think that I have perfect balance and I don't. I don't. I get up early. I work hard. I try really hard to stop at like 6 p.m. Mm -hmm. You know, and if I have a deadline, I try to make sure I meet that earlier in the day so that I can stop when it's time to, to stop. But yeah, it's tough. The work-life balance, I think, will be like one of my ultimate goals in, in the end to one day say that I have the freedom to do whatever I want and I can still please my clients in the way that I feel. Because we all do this because we love it. I think that's the problem is when, when you're doing a job, right? And you're getting paid, you're working eight hours a day. Maybe you're doing something you kind of enjoy. Maybe you just have a job. Hopefully there's not a lot of people that just have jobs and, and settle for that. But when you're so passionate and your job is so fun and you would basically do it for free, it's really hard to find that balance because you're having a good time. I enjoy mixing records because I enjoy mixing records, not because I get paid at the end. So that's, I think, the part that makes work-life balance tough for me is, uh, is I would do it all day anyway. So what, like, why would I stop? <laughs> so do you have a home studio situation now? Kind of. I'm between studios right now. Right now I'm in the spare bedroom, but I have construction going on in the garage. Not today, despite the fact that there's supposed to be contractors back there today. Not today. I had a studio for a while that I really loved with my production partner. We made a lot of records there, but we moved out during the pandemic because my intention was to build a room. So I'm in the process of building a, a mix-only room for myself in the garage. And uh, if I'm remembering correctly, you're going to do it as an Atmos room. Yeah, I think so. I think so. For me, there's a lot of changes. Yeah, uh, coming in my life mm. right now. My wife and I are expecting our first child. Oh, congrats. So, thank you. So, the Atmos, you know, the initial investment is pretty heavy. I want to do it. I think it's really exciting, but the rational side of me says that 
you need to make sure that there's an ROI on this money before you dish this money out because you have commitments coming that are far more important than 13 speakers. But 13 speakers does sound a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you're you're in an awkward position there. I know. It's like the kid's coming. Yeah. There could be work on the horizon. I'm not set up yet, but I'm getting calls from people now going, are you ready? Are you set up? Because I have something for you. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm not ready. And yeah. I won't be ready until, yeah. okay, I'll call you then. Yeah. So I'm trying to, that's kind of where I'm at is, is I'm putting the feelers out there. I'm going to see if I can start doing some work. If I got to go to a room in town to finish it, maybe I'll do that. I kind of want to see what the landscape looks like. And then I am ready and willing to make the investment if it makes sense. I just want to make sure it makes sense. Yeah. Well, you've heard my show a bit, I think. And so you know that I'm going to ask you at this point in your life, what is your financial philosophy as an audio pro? My philosophy now currently is that I hate to say this on an audio podcast, but gear doesn't matter to me anymore. When I moved out of my studio, there was a lot of gear that me and my partners had. And to replace all of that, stuff that wasn't mine was, I mean, that was an investment I wasn't going to make. And I switched over to an Apollo interface off of the Avid interface. And everything that we had an analog version of, I, I have the UAD plug-in. I'm going to use it on the way in. I own a few mic pre's. I think that's all I need. They're all Neve and API mic pre's. They'll be good forever. So really for me, financially, I'm not really looking other than Atmos to make like big investments into audio. I think that saving is important for us as independent freelance people because you're the only person that can do that. And I don't work for a corporation anymore. I don't have a retirement plan. And when you do work in a lot of studios for a long time, you do see that people work for a long time. And you have to think to yourself, do I want to have to go into the room and work when I'm at X age? Is that where I want to be doing? Because the downfall of engineering is that you basically have to be in the room to make the money. So yeah. my philosophy is to look for auxiliary sources of income, to save, focus on retirement. And those are challenging things to do when your income can fluctuate. As we all know, income fluctuates, but it's kind of, kind of where my head's at on that. Sounds like you are one who's looking to diversify <laughs> your income streams, I am, as I'm always talking about. I am indeed looking to diversify. I am. We talked about this when you were on on my show for a second. I think that the education system, I think, fails people a little bit when it comes to finances. I don't think it's fair that you can graduate from high school or college and not know how to do your taxes, not know how to like make a budget. And I think that people fall victim to that for far too long. I'm not saying that I budget perfectly and that I'm a great saver, but I think that the first thing you should do when you start working for yourself is to go educate yourself on the ways that you can save money and make money. Yeah. Because nobody else is going to teach that to you. Unfortunately, no one else is going to teach that to you. And I think that's the problem. That is pretty ridiculous that we have high school and college graduates that don't have a clue about finances. And I just, I'm with you. I think it's ridiculous that it's not taught in the education system in the United States. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the first thing Every time I've had an assistant or an intern and I've been like, hey, thanks for tuning this vocal, like send me an invoice. If they're fresh out of college, they're like, cool, how do I do it? And I'm like, all right, call me 
set out an hour of your time. We're going to talk about your future and money. <laughs> <laughs> and at the end, I'm going to tell you how to send me an invoice because it's just like I was fortunate to learn a lot of a lot about saving and luckily investing because I was involved in corporate businesses. And so like when somebody's like, hey, here's a thing called a 401k and you're like, okay, well, tell me about it. Oh, okay. So you take some of my check and like it gets saved and then it grows. I think that if you don't get exposed to those things either through your own family life or through a job that you have that you need to seek out knowledge on just the financial world and choose the part of it that seems appealing to you. I don't think anybody should take a risk, but but learn about it. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We're almost out of time here. Where do you think people should check you out at? It's pretty easy. My website is travisferrance.com. That's probably the best place to find me. The only social platform that I am really active on is Instagram, and that's at tferrance, just the letter T. And then the podcast, if you're at all interested, is called Progression Success in the Music Industry. You can find it wherever you find podcasts, but obviously we're listening to a podcast, so you probably know where that is. That's Progression's pod on social platforms. And I do have, if you don't mind me mentioning, a new business venture that I think is going to be cool. I can't really talk about it, but I'm probably going to get that out there in the fourth quarter. And it's kind of focused on like helping independent artists and producers hit like a growth stride. And I haven't seen anything like it on the internet. That's all I can really say. If you want to know about it, maybe just sign up for the mailing list of my website, which I do not use. So you won't get spam. You'll only get one email about this thing. <laughs> but that's about it. I mean, hit me up on the internet. Send me a message. I like to meet new people. Whether you want to work together or not, I don't care. I'm looking to make new music friends. Yeah. Well, I'll include a link in the show notes to all of that stuff. Did we miss anything that you wanted to talk about? There is. There's one thing that I think, you know, I probably should have brought up when we were talking about the podcast, but I went through a stretch of time that I was not learning new things. And around the time that I started the podcast, I had to learn a lot of new things. I had to learn how to make a podcast, how to do graphics, learn Adobe Illustrator. And I don't know what it was about my life somewhere in the middle, 10 years into my career where like I thought I knew everything, but I would just encourage people to always learn and to always grow because you hit like a stale, like not depression, but you just don't feel fulfilled and you're not sure why. And it's because you're not growing. And I, I, I encourage people to grow in like whatever way they want. If you don't want to, practice your mixing because you think you're the greatest mixer in the world. That's cool. But maybe like think about your growth as a parent or a friend. Maybe you have a hobby. Maybe you're into photography. Just learn something new all the time because I think that's really what keeps humans really ultimately happy. Just a little thing that I, I thought about. So Yeah. I also think it, it keeps you sharp as you grow older. It's just keeps you engaged so you don't get into just the hamster on the wheel kind of lifestyle. Yeah. The comfort zone is dangerous because it has a use, the comfort zone. There's a time and a place for it, but you have to be careful. You can't stay in it forever. You got to step out every once in a while. That's right. You got to shake it up every once in a while. That's right. That's right. It's great to talk to you again. I enjoy talking shop with you and uh, I'm glad that we could do it on your show and I'm glad that you could come on my show and, and, and chat. So check out Everything that Travis is doing, including his podcast, which I'll include a link in the show notes. Travis, thanks again. I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Like I said, it's it's an honor. I'm, I should have said it in the beginning, but I'm obviously a huge fan of the show. I love what you're doing. 
I just listened to your 350th anniversary. Congrats. It's awesome. Thank you. And on the chance that you haven't heard that episode, people should go listen to that one because honestly might be my favorite one you ever did. Yeah, that's it was really good. It was definitely good. Leslie Brathwaite has got some knowledge to to share. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, I just I just wanted to say thank you and to even be on your show is an honor. So thank you. Oh well, thank you for being here. All right. Will you take care? Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Travis Ferentz here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Remember, if you have a guest suggestion, rather than fill out the contact form, fill out the guest suggestion form that is on the workingclassaudio.com website. And there you can make a suggestion of a guest you think would be a great candidate to be on this show. But that's all for me today. I want to thank my crew. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdale on the Working Class Audio theme song, and Chuck Smith with his lovely voice at the top of the show. Once again, appreciate your dedication to listening each week. And until next time, my friends, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on Gearspace.com. So check that out.